0: You're listening to WKXL in the Morning. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Let's get the latest in New Hampshire government news with our friends at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Get their articles at NewHampshireBulletin.com. They join WKXL in the Morning every Friday, and this week I'm joined by reporter Ethan DeWitt. Welcome back. Glad to be here. So let's start off with, uh, I, I, I love covering law enforcement subjects. It's, uh, I've I've had one of the subjects of this article on my show before, uh, John Skippa, who's fantastic over at Police Development Training. Um, but state police are looking for a new accreditation process for uh, uh, police departments. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, so the state has acquired about $100,000 in federal funding, and that was approved last week by the Executive Council. And the funding will allow the state Um, the Police Standards and Training Council to set up a new accreditation program. So accreditation programs are essentially, they're not necessary for police departments, um, but they're a means for a police department to kind of go through a a review and audit process of their policies, of some of their facilities, of their practices, of their officers, and decide whether it kind of meets some rigorous standards. Uh, and so this $100,000 would be to create a state accreditation that New Hampshire departments could apply for. There is a uh, an accreditation program, a, a national one that's well regarded, but actually of, I don't actually know how many departments in, are in the state, but only 17, about 17 police departments in New Hampshire participate in that national accreditation. And the reason that is, is I was told is that it's just cost prohibitive for a lot of these small police departments. Um, many of them want to, but uh, don't have the resources. Or there are facility requirements that some towns are just too small to have. Like if, if you need your own standalone facility, for instance, some police departments are joined to town halls. So the national accreditation uh, is actually out of reach Um police chiefs, say, for many of their departments. And so this is a statewide approach that is intended to give a different avenue.
0: Now, government programs, I wouldn't say, are usually inexpensive. (laughs) So this makes me skeptical that only one hundred thousand dollars is being put towards it from federal funds. I mean, is this going to be supplemented elsewhere?
1: yeah it's there are a lot of questions uh that are still to be answered this is very early stages Mm -hmm. and i i'm also curious to know how they'll spend the money in their application so to speak to the executive council they said that they would hire a coordinator who would help market the program to departments because of course they're going to have to convince departments that this is something that they should jump on board for uh and also they're going to set up a commission that will be a um Made up of stakeholders and law enforcement, that wasn't really made exactly clear yet, and they're still kind of working on that. But that commission would be the body that would actually review applications from police departments. I, I would presume that that would not be a paid commission, uh, given how you know there's not much money. Um, the agency that is carrying this out is the Police Standards and Training Council, and they're the that's the agency that already trains all of New Hampshire's police officers. It also disciplines them uh, in in certain circumstances. So it is sort of a natural fit to also accredit uh, police departments. And it's actually carrying this out in uh, conjunction with the, the association of the chiefs of police in the state. So again, it's very early days. We don't know what it's gonna look like. And crucially, we don't know what the criteria are going to look like And I think that is where um, I'm going to keep kind of following this story and looking at um, how this develops, especially in the wake of, you know, all of the George Floyd protests and New Hampshire's LEAC commission. There are a lot of ways they could take these criteria. And, you know, they're starting from scratch. So there are a lot of questions as to as to what might be included in the end.
0: And I'd imagine the LIAC commission crew, which fortunately you've written out what it stands for in the article so I can read it out loud, is Commission on <laughs> Law Enforcement, Accountability, Community, and Transparency, which is commonly referred to as LIAC. It's so a very important commission that tons of different stakeholders. Um, I'd imagine this is one of the things that they were pushing for when they were formed.
1: Yeah, this was one thing that came up when I talked to John Skipa, who's the director of the Police Standards and Training Council. He said that this was sort of a, a, a one of the direct results of the commission, which again was formed in 2020 in the wake of uh, widespread national demonstrations about, you know, police reform, and so this is that's sort of how it's being pitched by the state. Of course, there are other stakeholders that may want to weigh in um, that have been on part of that commission, uh, and we'll see how that goes. There is a, a movement that when I talk to the um, head of the. The president of the Chiefs of Police Association, um, he was saying that there's a, a, a campaign called Eight Can't Wait. And that's something that he's heard his his constituents talk about, his uh, the you know, his own town. He's the police chief in Hollis. Uh the Eight Can't Wait campaign kind of came out of emerged out of the, the George Floyd um, aftermath, and it's essentially eight policies that they argue that every police department should implement immediately. A lot of them have to do with use of force, banning chokeholds, banning firing a weapon on a moving vehicle, uh, requiring de-escalation before using force, um, requiring officers to intervene if another officer is using excess force. Um, and when I when I talked to um, the the chief about this, he said that. A lot of uh, New Hampshire departments already follow a lot of these policies, mm-hmm. but that if they incorporate them into this accreditation process, they may have to formalize it, or they may have to make it clear in their in their policies. Um, and you know, there'll ha- there'll be a third party that can kind of look at the actual what's on paper in each of these departments. So we'll see how again how this develops. We don't know what these standards are going to look like, but that's an example of something. You know curbing use of force uh Mm -hmm. other examples are financial management of departments um things that you know police chiefs might not be considering especially in smaller departments transparency uh you know evidence collection record keeping these are all things that could fill fit into new hampshire's accreditation one area they're not going to um focus on too much is physical um space like like building requirements and that's because as i mentioned earlier that is one of the concerns with the national program which is that new hampshire has so many small towns there are a lot that just can't meet those so i'm told the criteria that that are going for the state program are likely going to be policy based and not really based on you know the size of your buildings
0: yeah, they, better, uh, they definitely better figure out the uh, the financial side of it because a lot of these standards are going to require money either for data collection, uh, data storage, <coughs> and actually and analyzing that, especially if they're wanting reports on a regular basis. As, as someone that uh, works at a radio station, there's this little yeah. thing called the FCC where mm-hmm. uh, you don't the, – the worst thing in the world you could possibly get is a review by the FCC because they tend not to do it. But what you do is you get at this – this minor accreditation, I, I'm spacing the name of it, where uh, old Bob Shotwell comes around every couple of years and looks over your equipment from, he comes up from Virginia or somewhere down south, and looks over and it's expensive. And if, if things aren't yeah. where they need to be, it can involve contractors being hired. And it's the same thing with police stations. They have specific equipment they need to have. And the added thing when it comes to police, where especially with the nature of what they're looking to add that aren't necessarily considered uh, right now is liability. The more policies and procedures you add, the more likely mm-hmm. you are to be sued if you break those policies and procedures. Yeah, and, and I'd imagine that uh, some towns or police departments might be weary of it, even though it may be in the public
1: interest to have. Them. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was actually one of the items that was listed as a as a selling point for this accreditation program that you would avoid liability because mm-hmm. you have these pol- you have policies. I think ideally to avoid situations where your officers didn't know how to respond and uh, reacted poorly and might be sued later. Um, Or you might have you might avoid a situation where your your record keeping, you know, wasn't up to par because you hadn't really Done a review of it, and you just assume that you know things have been going well for decades. Why change now? The argument is that well, if you have an accreditation process, you're going to have to dust off all of these policies that you might not really have looked at for a while, and kind of you'll have fresh eyes on what your department is doing, and that might be a good thing. The other argument that I heard was insurance uh, insurance rates might go down kind of hard to know yeah. whether they will. Um, but I think your, what your point also strikes at something else, which is that this is voluntary. And so if there are departments who truly don't want this kind of accountability or truly believe that what they're doing is right, they don't need a review, they don't have to under this uh, program. And so it's going to be interesting to see which police departments do this. Are, are they going to be the ones that already have all these policies? Or are there going to be police departments that you know, legitimately say we're we we want to get better and we want to get up to up to speed with this, so we're going yeah, we'll to participate. a lot see. of
0: the cities are going to sign right up for it, and a lot of the smaller towns can be like, I don't know if it's worth all the the pain and effort of putting it in place. So They'll be interesting to see, say, so, because if yeah. it ends up being a huge success in the in the cities, it, I mean, it ultimately could end up getting a little bit of a financial like, hey, if you do this, you can get some state funding uh, yeah. if if you go through with it, and that that basically. Mm-hmm.
1: There's also the role of the public. I mean, you know, we, we saw, again, going back to 2020, there was a lot of interest in police reform. This is something that could be a litmus test for different departments for people who are interested in police reform. And that, and we'll see again how that plays out. But if you're a police chief and you can say, look, we've been accredited by, this, by these state standards, uh, and you couldn't do that before with national accreditation for whatever reason, um, the expense is, is high. One thing I didn't mention is that for the national accreditation, there's a renewal fee every year that is thousands of dollars and it wow. can, it's just out of budget for a lot of departments to, to do that renewal fee. But if you can say as a, as a local chief, hey, we've done these, we, we've actually been checked off on all of these items, then you might have a stronger case to make that you are you know, operating above board and you might be able to dissuade some concerns in your community. So that's the the last kind of selling point that I heard is that this is something that will improve relations with the community and might be an incentive to do it.
0: Let's move over to education. It looks like there's Republican lawmakers trying to uh, dissolve cooperative school districts, uh, which is something cooperative school districts are pretty common, I want to say, in New England. We see we see it up in, I grew up in Maine, my, my mom and sister actually work for an RAU is what they call it up in central Maine. And uh, there it's not quite as common in New Hampshire, it seems like.
1: Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting bill. So uh, I had no idea that this um, honestly, before I saw this bill, that this this was, I mean, I've, you've anyone who's lived near a cooperative school district knows that there have been tensions for a while. Um, but I didn't know that there was a movement to try to dismantle them. Um, so cooperative school districts are essentially you can have single town school districts. Um, but in a lot of areas, uh, you know, there's going to be one town that is much better resourced, has more money, uh, and surrounding towns that might not have the resources or the population to justify building their own school or district. So a cooperative school district uh, allows you to merge multiple towns into one district. And the idea is that everybody gets uh, representation, you know, on the school board of all the towns. Um, but those cooperate, cooperative school districts also carry costs for some of the smaller towns in order to participate. And this creates tension. Um, And, you know, you don't have to look any further than than town meeting season uh, and kind of school annual meeting season that is right around the corner for us um, to see how some of these tensions play out. There might be a bigger town that might want to do something and the smaller town uh, might not, but will get outvoted. That's often a common concern. So, these have been around. Many of them were created before the 1963 when the state um, created a law that kind of formalized um, how they were created. So a lot of them have been around for decades. And the concern is that they are hard to break out of. If you're a town that's in one of them and you want no longer want to be, it is the, the argument is that it, um, it's difficult because you need to... Uh, not only get all the board members in your cooperative school district or a majority to support it, then get the state board of education to support it. You also need to convince all of the voters and all of the towns, not just your town, that it's okay to leave. And often that is not feasible because the other towns don't have an incentive to let one of the towns leave. So this bill would take a as one um, opponent to it said, "A sledgehammer to the solution. Yeah, tradition. this
0: totally seems like to the nuclear option. Like, we're just, yeah, okay, we're just gonna kill it and start over. I'm like, right. oh, are we really? Yet another of the – There's so many of these bills that have gone through this session. They're like, oh my god, we're really just gonna take the sledgehammer, and just just yeah. beat that baby to death
1: here. <laughs> and it seems so. I, I'm. That's what I what caught my attention. It, this bill would end all cooperative school districts not just the ones you might be thinking of but regional school districts you know the merrimack valley regional school district or the Kentucky valley regional school district there's a lot of those they would be ended by this too they'd all be ended by 2025 and the idea would be we'll, we'll kill them all and then out of the ashes Towns that don't have their own schools can do tuition agreements where you pay, you know, a certain amount for your your children. The the issue that opponents of this law have with that is that tuition agreements don't allow for representation on those school boards. Um, And so there are they argue there's a lot of towns that do benefit from cooperative school districts. It's a way to pool your resources to get, you know, an upgrade to your gym or your playground in a way that you might not have been able to do uh, if you had to, you know, uh, have your own district or pay tuition to another one. So it's really messy. But One thing I did take away from my conversation with the Republican sponsor is that he's amenable to changing it. It seems like this is not going to be the final form. His bill would end all cooperative school districts, but there seem to be skeptics in his own party, Republicans, who say maybe there's a middle ground. Maybe there's a way we can keep the ones that want to stay. Um, So it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Um, I just as a parent.
0: I'm like let's just, I I know so many people would be upset by the lack of control over it from the local perspective. Just state fund the damn schools. Just yeah. there's so many of the issues that have been brought up of of late with regards to to school funding. Not enough teachers. They can't afford to get the technology in place. Statewide, the funding it would re- would resolve a lot. But on the other hand, I can see the skeptics being like, "Yeah, but you, whenever this, there's money coming from a government entity, there are strings attached to in order to continue to have that state funding because yeah. then you have something to hold over the school districts."
1: Yeah, and I I, I think that the funding thing came up. There are some opponents of this uh, law to end cooperative school districts that are saying that this is just a you know ploy to. Break up districts, and that would kind of open the opportunity for more charter schools and for more uh, usage of the EFA program, the you know the voucher-like program that allows parents to use funding to go to private schools uh, or homeschool. There, there was there's some accusations. The sponsors obviously say that's not the intention. The intention is to help the t- small towns. But, you know, it's very complicated. And these, um, I, w- I guess one thing I would agree for sure with having reported this is that it is very convoluted to leave a cooperative school district if you're in one. So that might be a, a topic for common ground for there to actually be a compromise bill that says, can we improve the process? If you're a town that has been stuck in this district since the 60s and wants to leave, can we improve it so you no longer need to jump through, you know, five different votes
0: yeah that seems to be the pattern where the these all like all conquered old like Concord has their charter that is up for vote again down here and it seems like all, all the decisions for education in new hampshire were decided in the 60s and 70s and they made it so hard for changes to happen that here we are again and we're deciding it several decades later
1: yeah yep <laughs> welcome to the state <laughs> <laughs>
0: A little bit of inefficiency in the process, but it'll, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, cause I mean, especially with high schools. That seems to be the biggie. High schools are a lot more expensive uh, from uh-huh. an education standpoint, from the libraries that are required for resources that you need. Uh, in addition to you're also, in theory, prepping a lot of your students to be going off to college where uh-huh. you really need to... It, it's really hard for a small town to, to fund that in addition to that primary school. And it's reason why Merrimack Valley, which is over in Penacook here, a, a lot of area towns send to it. Concord School District is a very similar way. Uh, yeah. Growing up in rural Maine, like we all went to a private high school because that was the rural high school and, and the towns yeah. all paid for everyone to go there.
1: Yeah. And again, that is still an option. Any town that wants you can do tuition agreements, like mm-hmm. I said. But what you lose in a tuition agreement is direct. Um, representation of the people in the certain towns on school board. So cooperative school districts require representation from the towns that are part of them, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, that is. And that representation has been,
0: been a big point that the Republicans especially been on of late when it comes to the divisive concepts and yeah. uh, avoiding certain subject matter from being taught in the classroom. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So this is just a bill that I, when I first saw it, it seemed to come out of left field. Now that I've uh, talked to some people, I get where it's coming from. I don't think it's going to survive in its final form. Um, I think it'll be watered down if it passes, but it's an interesting discussion of something that has been a decades long uh, system. Ethan
0: DeWitt the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Check out more from them at NewHampshireBulletin.com. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. We'll be right back after this.